Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Man, I'll tell you what, for political commentary, this week leaves no shortage of information. You had, now it's old news, but you had the really pornographic displays at the Super Bowl halftime show last Sunday. I was surprised to see uh, some of them woke crowd people in, in conservative evangelicalism even, or what used to be called that, um, making fun of the prudes who objected to it. Now, I didn't see the whole thing. I saw little clips, and that's all I want to see. Uh, but that's how you know your culture is being destroyed, when these supposed religious conservatives are in a kind of a roundabout way defending that kind of display by making fun of anyone who would object to it. And I saw Mr. Den Hollander, and I saw uh, Jonathan Merritt saying things along those lines, and I did not do a deep dive on Twitter to find out who was saying what, but... That alone just, it surprises me. I thought for the woke crowd, objectifying women was a problem, but apparently not as much as I thought. And then you had the State of the Union uh, speech, which by the way, that, I don't know if it's a context we're living in, that was one of the best speeches uh, for the State of the Union I think I'd ever seen, uh, if not the best. I I just, I don't know, I just, (laughs) it could be that we're bombarded with negative news uh, coming especially from the radical radical left uh, that that this was such a contrast. I don't know, but uh, it, it was like the Democrats were attending a funeral and the Republicans were attending a wedding. The contrast could not have been more stark. And if President Trump doesn't win re-election, I don't know this country. I mean, I, and by the way, I did not vote for Trump in 2016. Um, and, and that's why I want to make an episode at some point about Donald Trump and kind of my my thinking on whether to vote for him or not, I probably will this next time around, uh, but because I was a never Trumper in a way, uh, probably for different reasons than most of the never Trumpers out there, uh, I, hopefully maybe I can get through to them, we'll see. Um, <laughs> maybe that's a long shot. But uh, but yeah, there's so much. Uh, Kirk Douglas also, by the way, was buried. Um, the, 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 most of you may not know, if you're my age or uh, younger than me, you probably don't know who Kirk Douglas is, but 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you gotta go watch that movie. I always loved Whale of a Tale. Uh, I mean, I was a little kid, you know, I had a little sing-along thing, but I, I love Captain Nemo, and uh, and I forget the character he played on that, but Kirk Douglas, 103 years old. Man, I did not know he was he was that old. Um, but yeah, so much going on, but um, I'm not going to really talk about any of that uh, today. Oh, well, one more thing, actually, before I get to the main course here. Um, I did attend uh, a conference called the Churchman Conference, um, on uh, Mon- Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, down in Jupiter, Florida, and had a good time and uh, met some of you. And uh, I know some of you are probably listening now. Uh, there's probably, I don't know, four or five people who recognized me, came up to me. Uh, a few of them uh, thanked me. And uh, so they were listeners of the podcast. So, um, so yeah, thank you for that. It was an encouraging time. And on the, the plane ride back on Wednesday, when I was coming back home, I ran, I ran into this guy. Um, on the plane, I, I sat next to him and you know asked him. So, what were you doing in Florida? And uh, he he says, "Well, uh, I I actually work for a company that grows uh, marijuana, basically, or, or I guess they um, supply uh, material to farmers who grow marijuana. It's a company uh, that that de- deals with that business." And uh, I said, "Oh, that that's fascinating. I'm sure that's a growing business." So we got to talking, and and you know how do, how do you prepare for this kind of a worldview? So I, I share the gospel with him, uh, go through some of the Ten Commandments. He's not a good person, right? We, we do all that. And, uh, and, and we're talking about there being an immaterial world, a spiritual world. And he says, kind of leans in, and he, he kind of whispers in my ear. He goes, I believe 
there's 14 levels of reality beyond this one. And <laughs> I, I looked at him, I said, 14? You're sure it's that exact number, 14? He said, yep, it's 14. I've been to all of them. I said, well, this is going to be an interesting conversation. So where, <laughs> how did you go to 14 levels of reality beyond this physical world? Well, it turns out uh, this gentleman went to South America and he said he was uh, with some shamans there. Uh, he paid over over $3,000, I guess, to go through this program that was about a week where the shamans, uh, I guess, give him hallucinogenic drugs. And <clears throat> he heard voices and he saw visions. And uh, and so he, he asked me, he says, well, who do you think, the, the, the main voice he heard, he goes, who do you think it was that was talking to me? And I said, I don't know. And he says, it wasn't God, it wasn't Jesus. It was me, the only voice I had never been listening to. And and this voice showed me all these micro trauma events in my life and how they've shaped me. And, and I just, I, I release so much of the bad energy I have. And he went on to explain that everything's connected by this energy field and plants even, plants scream when you cut them because even though they don't have a nervous system, they have energy. And uh, it was just, it was very interesting. So he was, he was a pantheist. Um, we, we sort of got to the bottom of it. And I asked him, I said, what? How do you make distinctions between myself and you and the chair and everything else in this world? Uh, you know, you're talking to me. We have personhood and identity. How do you make those distinctions? How do you, uh, when someone does something evil, because uh, we had already gone through the Ten Commandments and he uh, seemed to have a sense of justice, said, how do you uh, create a civil penalty for someone if they're just part of everything? You know, they're, they're really, they're no, there's no identity in them. And he didn't really have an answer for that. And I think it, it intrigued him. Hopefully he'll think about it. Um, but yeah, just it was interesting. It, it just reminded me of how in our postmodern day and age, uh, we're not dealing most of the time with traditional religions. This guy grew up Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic, but he um, clearly was making up his own religion as he went. And um, that's why it's good to ask questions and to, to have a good foundation. I, I, I tend to take more of a presuppositional approach to apologetics uh, doesn't mean I don't like evidence. I do, um, but I, I definitely think there's there's deep philosophical um, reasons that people tend to go the way they go and believe what they do. And and for him, uh, he really thought that he was his own god. That's the, ultimately what it amounted to. Uh, self connection was the big thing. You just got to be connected to yourself. And so I asked him. I said, "Who? So who? Um, who allowed all these micro trauma events to affect you then?" Uh, who he said he was believing lies. I said, who uh, allowed you to believe these lies? And he said, it was me. I said, so it sounds like you're the problem, which is exactly what scripture says about us. We are the problem. And um, so hopefully it gave him something to think about, but pray for him. I think his name, it was, it was an unusual name. It was, I think it was Rex. Um, and anyway, um, God knows who it is. And it was, it was just a fascinating conversation. And uh, it just reminded me of kind of the, the times that we live in. But the main course today, the main thing we're going to be talking about is something that I have been asked over and over and over, uh, probably the most common question I get asked, uh, asked, and that is, where is Al Mohler? Where is Al Mohler? Um, with all the woke stuff going on, uh, some of his own professors, uh, there's at least four of them that have been promoting ideas consistent with critical race theory. Where is he in all this? I mean, he says things against critical race theory, but what about his own backyard? What about the major issues that take place in the convention? And I want to, to address this, and I've tried to be careful. I want to sort of take you on my own personal journey here a little bit. I uh, joined the Southern Baptist Convention 
because of Al Mohler. That's really the main reason. I was at uh, the Master's Seminary in California and had always been more a part of that kind of John MacArthur crowd growing up. And uh, because of Al Mohler's speaking at the, pres uh, the Shepherds Conference and um, because he was respected by John MacArthur and because he was so big into um, public theology, engaging culture, quote unquote, I really gravitated towards that. I had a, a sort of a semi-political background and a political interest, and but I also really wanted to know the Bible, and I thought, you know, I, I want to get involved in the Southern Baptist Convention. If it's going the direction of Al Mohler, and I, I really like what I'm hearing, and this was, you know, 10 years ago or more. Now, about maybe seven or eight years ago, I, I had I started listening to the briefing every day, and this is before I joined the Southern Baptist Convention, but... Um, I actually uh, got a little, not a lot, but a little concerned with some of the things I heard on the briefing. And I noticed that, because um, I, I have a history background, and I noticed when Al Mohler ever talked about uh, history, um, he tended to read it. If it was ever uh, something that you could sort of bring in a uh, an aspect of, uh, a racial aspect into it, he would sort of read it through the civil rights movement. Um, and not just history, but even present day things, he would, um, I remember there was one instance where there was a shooting, and before the evidence had even come out, Al Mohler, uh, on the briefing, made this whole statement about uh, the black experience and their relationship with the police and how this is something to be um, expected, it's, it's the pattern that, that um, and, and, and this is kind of indicting the guy, the police officer, before uh, the facts had been known. And... Um, and I think for the most part, Albert Mueller is very careful. I think he's very calculated, in fact. But there was a, a, a few things he said along those lines that I just thought, you know, I can get my information somewhere else. And uh, but I still absolutely respected Al Mueller. Um, you know, people who listen, I wasn't on a campaign to say you shouldn't listen to him. Uh, I was encouraging people to read his books, you know, really good stuff. Um, but there was a little, I just wanted to say there's a little part of me that thought, you know, something's slightly off. And I don't, I can't completely put my finger on it. But I still was attracted to the Southern Baptist Convention. I, and I, of course, went to a Southern Baptist school and uh, saw the transformation there. And any of you who listen to this podcast regularly, you know what I'm talking about. So all that to say, I owe a debt to Albert Moeller for shaping my own thinking. I respect uh, some of his stands that he's taken in the past. Uh, I am concerned with uh, some actions that he's taken as of late, and I want to go over some of those with you. Uh, my goal, though, is to give him every benefit of the doubt possible, and I want to just present to you what I'm seeing, present to you the publicly available facts, and you can make your own determination at the end of this. I don't want to necessarily steer you. Obviously, I'm going to have my own biases, but I'm not trying to, to steer you towards uh, the idea that he's either liberal or conservative or an opportunist necessarily. I, I, I do have my own thinking on this, but I want to show you what I'm looking at. And, and then, um, and at the end, I will tell you kind of where I lean based on that information. But I want you to see the information first and make up your own mind. Uh, come up with your own paradigm that makes sense of all the facts available. And, um, and, and the reason for that, uh, the reason that's important, I think, is that Albert Mueller is running for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's probably one of the reasons I get this question a lot. And I think conservatives are very afraid because of Al Mueller's um, stature and because of the, the great things he's written in the past, because... Uh, of just um, you know how politically uh, damaging it would be if you were in the SBC to say anything negative about him. I think they're afraid, and I'm I'm not. I, I think that um, 
it's good. It's a good, healthy uh, conversation to have. And so I'm going to have E.S. Williams with me later uh, to talk about this. Uh, he's done a lot of digging. And by the way, you can go to the info section. You can watch both of Dr. E.S. Williams' videos on Albert Moeller um, and, and see what you think about that. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, really, go watch those. He, he's done probably a lot more time on this than I have, but I do have a perspective to share with you. So I want to bring this up. I want to start this out by talking about some recent things. Um, just recently, a couple days ago, Albert Moeller put out a tweet, and he said, Southern Baptists are up to the challenge of talking to one another about difficult questions. And, and really what he's um, retweeting here is a Baptist Press article from the Resolutions Committee on the Southern Baptist Convention where they're talking about Resolution 9. And what, res what happened is, <laughs> essentially, if to sum up this article, the Resolutions Committee for the Southern Baptist Convention says, yeah, you know, we're concerned about Resolution 9, too. <laughs> we, we, we're the ones that they essentially rewrote the resolution. It's not, it doesn't hardly even resemble the resolution that was presented to them by the pastor out in California. And they, they introduced critical theory as this useful analytical tool. And then they're saying how, yeah, we're concerned about that language. Now, the, the thing that it's been pointed out, I know A.D. Robles, who, by the way, you should subscribe to his channel. A.D. Robles pointed out, <laughs> Tom Askell introduced a friendly amendment that would have alleviated all these concerns. All the things they're saying they're concerned about now, how this is a godless philosophy, uh, the damage it can do. Uh, Tom Askell introduced an amendment with language to that effect, and it was not, Curtis Wood said that they did not accept it as a friendly amendment. And, you, and you've seen what's happened to Tom Askell since then. And now all of a sudden they're sounding a little bit like Tom Askell. And it, it's, it's unusual. And they're acting like, yeah, we, we were always this way. This is, you know, the, the, our intentions were pure from the beginning. And Albert Moeller uh, supports them in this. Says, yeah, you know, I think, you know, again, Albert Moeller, he did not um, make a public stand against Resolution 9 during the actual procedure. Uh, it was the next day on his program. Uh, that he came out against it. And um, uh, I, I don't know. There's political calculations he's probably um, in, and I, and I don't pretend to know all of those. And there perhaps there's a reason for that. But, you know, Albert Moeller has been on record saying he, he doesn't really agree with this. And it, it, at the very least, it makes him very uncomfortable. But the resolutions committee now, um, he's saying that, you know, that they're, they're striking the right tone. He's, he's encouraging them, complimenting them. And, and I just have to wonder, isn't the right thing to do in this if this was a wrong resolution to just apologize, to just say, you know what, we messed up. Here's why we messed up, and we're going to correct it. We're going to get rid of Resolution 9. Uh, we're going to vote against it the next convention. That's not what's happening. There's kind of a rebranding of it, and Albert Moeller seems to be somewhat complicit in that. And so, so this is the curious behavior, though, because just last week, or a week and a half ago or so, he was on uh, The World and Everything in It, and you can go look at that, and Albert Moeller is swinging hard against critical race theory. And so the question has been, how can, you, um, how can you be so against something in the abstract, but then when it's concrete, when you, there's actual names attached to it, when it's actually in the purview of your control, you don't really do much about it. That's, that's I think, the tension that people have been wrestling with. And I, I want to make a quick comment about, though, the resolutions committee and, and whether they were genuine. This is just one little sample. You can do the Twitter deep dive. I mean, I, I did it just on this one guy. Um, Keith Whitfield, who's a professor at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, he was on the Resolutions Committee, and you know he would have uh, you know been part of this article, I guess, um, on the Resolutions Committee and and how they're kind of concerned about uh, some critical race theory now. 
Uh, but look what what was said at the time. Look, look, he um, he liked a comment by uh, Matthew uh, y Malcolm Yarnell, um, or Malcolm Yarnell says that essentially it was uh, it was the, they displayed the wisdom of Solomon. They displayed the wisdom of Solomon, and Keith Whitfield says, "Thank you, Doctor Yarnell." But now, um, yeah, we're really concerned about critical race theory. Doesn't sound like you know the two are compatible either. You know, you can't have this resolution nine, which adopts critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools. You can't have it be the wisdom of Solomon. And at the same time, yeah, we, you know, we're really concerned about the impact of this. It's one or the other. Um, and of course, you know, you can, I'm not going to take the time to read all these things, but obviously uh, Keith Whitfield was very proud of the work the resolutions committee did. When it, at the time it was passed, there, there doesn't seem to be any concern on, on his part, at least publicly, um, about this resolution and the impact it would have and uh, the dangers of critical race theory. He's circling the wagons with everyone else around this and saying it was, it was great. Uh, we needed Resolution 9. So uh, that's why you know, I have a hard time believing this latest article. Um, if, if you think you got it wrong, it's, it's simple. Just repent of it. Just say we were wrong. We're going we're gonna to get rid of that resolution. We're going to have another resolution that corrects it. Uh, that's not what's happening, though. So pay attention to, to those kinds of things and, and see if you know, the actions match the words. Now, there's three ways to view Albert Moeller, basically. I haven't thought of a fourth one. I've, I've been thinking about this for a year. I've been watching Albert Moeller's actions uh, because you know people immediately after Shepard's conference Q&A wanted to jump in. And I mean, I, I even had some insiders at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary telling me things about Al Moeller. And you know, I, I did not want to come out and say much about him uh, before I watched his actions. So it's been almost a year now. And I think there's been an, enough actions to watch to create a paradigm, to, to, to try to form an understanding. Um, the first uh, you know, way to view Albert Mueller's actions, though, is he's liberal. He, he's, he's a liberal. And, uh, and that's just all there is to it. He's posing as a conservative, but he's really liberal. And you can look at things like this. I'm just going to give you a few examples. You can look at you know, how in the world did Curtis Woods get his dissertation through the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. How did Albert Muller allow this to happen? Go to his abstract for his dissertation on Phyllis Wheatley. Chapter 3, it says, and I'm quoting, Chapter 3 assesses Wheatley's critique of exemplary or open American exceptionalism through the lens of Chattel slavery. Critical race theory becomes the analytical lens to understanding the intersection of religion, race, class, and gender on Wheatley's sociopolitical imagination. Literally, you have the chairman of the Resolutions Committee for Resolution 9, who is teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, right under Albert Moeller's nose, presenting a dissertation which was accepted by the institution, where he is using critical race theory as an analytical tool. And it says it in the abstract for his dissertation. That was his work at Southern. Is he liberal? Is he liberal? Is Albert Moeller liberal? Now, look, this is guilt by association. Albert Moeller didn't write that dissertation. Curtis Woods did. But it's at his institution. You'd think he'd know about it. You'd think he'd be working against that kind of thing somehow. But instead, Curtis Woods is teaching there. Instead, he's on the resolutions committee and not just on it, but the chairman of it. Um, then again, you have um, you know things like this. Albert Moeller in the summer, in August, uh, he really appreciated uh, Curtis Woods again and uh, Jarvis Williams a contribution to Christianity Today magazine. Now listen to this quote from this article. You can read the whole article, but listen to this one quote and see if you can see the perspectivalism or standpoint epistemology, this idea that 
you know, the way that the, the, there's this worldview that comes from, or essentially a way of looking at the world that comes from a sociopolitical, cultural group, and that impacts everything else. It, it, it's a, the elimination of objectivity, the adoption of subjectivity according to social groups. See if you see that in this sentence or paragraph I'm going to read. From where we sit, <laughs> starts off, from where we sit, so our perspective, as, as what? As African-American Christians. Okay, so now we're already now starting down that path. From where we sit as African-American Christians, racism and white supremacy are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they pose a threat to all diverse image bearers in our churches. Brown immigrants and people of color, families like Jarvis's with a Hispanic wife and a mixed African-American and Hispanic son, Curtis's with an African-American wife and children, are genuinely afraid that white supremacists may murder us and our kids because of the color of our skin. These fears are present in many of our churches. So Albert Moeller, uh, you know, he endorsed this on some level. Now you could say he didn't write that. Uh, he doesn't believe in perspectivalism. Um, and you can read the rest of the article and see kind of where they're coming from. Obviously, white supremacy is wrong. <laughs> but there's more, there's more in that paragraph than just that. Uh, there is a fear that comes from in their minds, this perspective that they have based on the social group that they're part of. And this has now been adopted in the reading of the Bible in, in the, the hermeneutical lens in many places, especially Southeastern. What does Albert Muller think about this? I, I don't know. I don't know. I would assume he, he'd be against it. Um, so there, I mean, I could give you more, but, and, and you will see more things later on. Um, <clears throat> but that's one paradigm. That's one uh, way to look at this. Um, another way to look at it is, well, he's, uh, you know, he, he's actually a conservative. Uh, I mean, look, here's a tweet that he put out in May last year against uh, Beth Moore. And <clears throat> it was uh, in favor of complementarianism. He doesn't name Beth Moore, but he uh, certainly is alluding to something Beth Moore had said. Uh, there's uh, the episode right after Resolution 9 passed that he put out on uh, the briefing. And he's against critical race theory. So, you know, look, he is conservative. That's another way of looking at Albert Moeller. Maybe he's conservative. And there's a third way. The third way of looking at Al Albert Moeller is he's really not liberal or conservative, but he's an opportunist. And I have had people sending me this to try to demonstrate that. When I met Dr. Muller in 1984, he was in the president's office serving as a special assistant to Roy Honeycutt. Al was the epitome of all the Southern Seminary men, and in relation to women in ministry, Southern Seminary was very supportive at that time of women in ministry and various leadership positions within the church. At the Southern Baptist Convention in 1984, I believe it was, uh, they passed a resolution prohibiting women from uh, being pastors. Why he got up, he started a protest movement of his own right here on this campus against that kind of thing. It was published in the Courier Journal. For all around us, we see the ruins of once great churches and once great denominations, which in the name of tolerance and modernity and inclusivity forfeited their integrity. Coming to the New Orleans Convention, uh, whispering to me in the press room on Tuesday morning, knowing that I was a moderate, that it did not look good for our side, 
And then after we had been defeated at that point and Roy Hunnicutt declared that any politicizing from our part was over, Amola returned to Georgia and his editorials took a hard right and began to become very political and very fundamentalist. Uh, there's this great uh, story that always gets told about Southern Seminary that you've made, in fact you may have noticed uh, while you were on campus that um, there's not a cross on top of the chapel. Uh, in fact, there's a weather vane on top of the chapel, and the story goes that every morning everyone has to go out on the lawn to see which way the theological winds are blowing, so they'll know what to teach that day. And uh, Al Mohler, in my assessment, pretty much personifies that, uh, that story. Dr. Al Mohler is a man who lives his convictions with courage. For me, having known Al and watched this um, transformation of Al, uh, when pe other people would call him a fundamentalist, I would correct them and say he's an opportunist, uh, that there's a difference of conviction. Well, <laughs> it's very simple. He, uh, I think he wanted to be president of Southern Baptist Seminary. I think he wanted to be a leader in the denomination. And to be a leader in the denomination, you've got to think, you've got to act, you've got to do what the uh, leadership of the convention requires. Now, interestingly enough, I was reading a book not too long ago, and I came across this. Um, it's called The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald. And... Uh, he's a liberal guy, there's no doubt about it, but he writes this. He says, when Honeycutt resigned in 1992, weary of the struggles between the faculty and the trustees, the search committee, with Honeycutt's support, appointed Moeller, then just 33, on the assumption that he could resolve the differences better than the candidates from the outside. Instead, Moeller moved the seminary abruptly to the right, adding positions on abortion, homosexuality, and women in the ministry to litmus test for future professors and causing turmoil in the faculty. So, so here's the narrative when people say this, that he's just an opportunist, what they're saying is, look, Honeycutt did not know, and the liberal professors there, they didn't really know that Albert Moeller was a complementarian before uh, he took over Southern. And when he took over Southern, it was right at the point where the conservative resurgence was the popular thing. Complementarianism was cool with the bigwigs in the SBC. And Paige Patterson, Adrian Rogers had done, they, they had taken most of the shots. Albert Moeller got to benefit from what they did on the convention level. And he implemented uh, some of their ideas at Southern Seminary. And he's an opportunist. And people close to him, you see in that video, he's an opportunist. That's who he is. And people are drawing parallels. They're saying, well, look, critical race theory was taught for years at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, look at all the things happening under Albert Moeller's nose. He doesn't say anything. And all of a sudden, now when it's all a concern and there's a political issue and you know, maybe critical race theory is not so cool. Even the resolutions committee is trying to backpedal on it. Now Albert Moeller is uh, all of a sudden you know, really going hard against it in the convention. That's what they say. So that, that's the third way of looking at this. So there's three you know, basic ways. Now, what was Albert Moeller's defense to this back in the 90s? This is what he said. I've been very very, very uh, um, clear about my own convictions, and I, I will always uh, be just that. It is my prayer. Now, in order to test this, in order to see where Albert Moeller lines up on the, these issues, I, I think it's good for us to be clear about 
three issues. And really, they are, uh, basically, in this current uh, liberal debate, uh, complementary and gender roles is coming back up, critical race theory, and LGBTQ normalization. Those are the three categories of uh, consternation for Southern Baptists. What do we do about this? Now, on the complementary and gender role thing, I showed you Albert Moeller uh, essentially came out against something Beth Moore said earlier this year. And that's really all I know about um, Albert Moeller's stand on that. Uh, he hasn't said much otherwise. And I, I think we should just take him at his word. He's the complementarian. Um, I know in the abstract, without you know naming names, he's also said other things in favor of complementarianism over the past year. And I, I, I just believe him. I think w there's no reason for me not to. He's a complementarian. He doesn't believe in any sense. I mean, you saw this in the, in the Founders documentary that uh, women should ever be pastors. Um, so he, he seems to have been consistent on that over the years. Now, the other issue is critical race theory. We will spend the lion's share of this podcast talking to Dr. E.S. Williams about critical race theory and where Albert Muller stands on that. Um, but let's jump to the third one. We'll save critical race theory for last, LGBTQ normalization. Now, the reality is Albert Muller has changed his stance on same-sex orientation. And I'm going to show you some clips uh, that demonstrate that. Uh, where you, one in, in particular where Albert Muller apologizes for getting this wrong. That is a switch, and that is a concerning switch, because that is really the, um, that, that is the basis on which this whole revoice, uh, not saying Dr. Omar agrees with revoice or everything in revoice at all, um, but that, that is kind of that Trojan horse behind everything um, regarding the soft peddling of homosexuality in evangelical Christian circles. Start with the idea that it's an innate orientation, something that um, is perhaps unchangeable, uh, something that uh, is is part of who a person is doesn't come from scripture at all uh, completely comes from it's, it's a freudian psych psychological idea uh, even people like rosaria butterfield acknowledge this uh, but albert moeller um ad adopts this uh on some level all right i'm not saying he's a nate collins who graduated from southern uh, but he he does adopt this on some level so here are the clips Evangelicals broadly, 
and Southern Baptists particularly, have, quote, lied, unquote, about homosexuality and practice homophobia. Uh, this is part of the greatness of the Southern Baptist Convention. We get to have a conversation, and this is the kind of conversation we're having. I'm thankful for the question, my brother, and I'm glad to tell you that uh, I was asked that question, and I made those statements. They're not alleged statements. They're actual statements. And there is no way that anyone can, uh, in fair-mindedness, be confused about what I believe about homosexuality because I published over 200 articles on the subject. Not that I'd expect you to go home and read them all this evening. Now, I was asked that question. I responded that I did because I believe then, and I believe now with my whole heart, that that is a part of our challenge as we now face the responsibility not only to speak the truth about homosexuality, but to minister to a very militant community of homosexuals, and also to a large number of persons in our churches, whether we want to acknowledge this or not, who are struggling with this issue. The reality is that we as Christian churches have not done well on this issue. And I think if we're unwilling to admit that, it is further to our shame. For instance, evangelicals, thankfully, have failed to take the liberal trajectory of lying about homosexuality and sinfulness. We know that the Bible clearly declares, not only in isolated verses, but in the totality of its comprehensive presentation, the fact that homosexuality not only is not God's best for us, as some try to say, but it is sin. It is particularly identified, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, as a sin indicative of the total wickedness and, and sinfulness of humanity as a whole. The point of Paul in Romans chapter 1, that if people will do this and rationalize it, the human beings are able to do anything in terms of sin and come to terms with it. The we as evangelicals have a very sad history in dealing with this issue. We have told not the truth, but we've told about half the truth. We've told the biblical truth, and that's important, but we haven't applied it in a biblical way. For instance, we have said to people that homosexuality is just a choice. Well, it's clear that it's more than a choice. That doesn't mean it's any less sinful, but it does mean it's not something that people can just turn on and turn off. We are not a gospel people unless we understand that only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ gives the homosexual person any hope of release from homosexuality. The gospel is what we stand for, and the gospel is the only remaining for children. And we have also exhibited a certain form of homophobia of which we must, absolutely must, in gospel terms, repent precisely because we believe in all the Scripture teaches about homosexuality and all the Scripture teaches about sin. We must recognize that our job isn't done until our churches look exactly like the church described in 1 Corinthians 6, where those very sins are articulated, and then it says, but such were some of you, but you were washed. Our job is not done until sitting in the pews among us are those of whom it is said, I once was that. As we say, I once was something else. We are sinners saved by grace. Until there are those who are, have been trapped in that sin sitting among us, we know we've got a gospel job to do. We understand there are those who are now, in terms of these biblical texts, are rejectionists. There are those who are saying that the human flourishing will only take place if these texts are stared down and rejected. And then there are others who are following a revisionist argument, saying, no, we can, we can make peace with this sexual revolution by understanding these texts in a way the Christian church never understood them before because data was lacking then that we have now. And undoubtedly, data was lacking then that we have now. One of the things we should not be embarrassed to say is that we are learning. 
One of the embarrassments that I have to bear is that I have written on some of these issues now for nearly 30 years, and, and at a couple of points, I have to say I got that wrong, and we got to go back and correct it, correct it by Scripture. Now, early in this controversy, I felt it quite necessary in order to, to make clear the gospel to deny anything like a sexual orientation. And uh, speaking at an event for the National Association of Evangelicals 20-something years ago, I, I made that point. I repent of that. I believe that a biblical theological understanding, a robust biblical theology would point to us that, that human sexual affective uh, profiles, that who we are sexually, is far more deeply rooted than just the will, if, if that were so easy. But Genesis 3 explains that. Helps us to understand that this complex of same-sex challenges coming to us is something that is deeply rooted in the biblical story itself and, and something that we need to take with far greater seriousness than we've taken in the past, understanding that that requires a far more robust gospel response than anything the church has come up with heretofore. So yeah, even, even apologizing uh, for his previous stand is, is just, it's a curious thing to me and it's an interesting thing. Um, and I'll let you make up your minds on what you think is going on in Dr. Mueller's mind and why he would change his stands on those things. Was it biblical? Or was there another concern that um, made him go that direction? Now, uh, last but not least, we're going to spend most of our time talking about critical race theory and where Albert Mueller stands on that. And I'm going to bring you through a lot of information. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. I am privileged today to have with me as a guest, Dr. E.S. Williams, who is a medical doctor and author and a member at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church. And uh, for those who don't know, that's actually a famous church uh, within especially Reformed Christian circles because that was where Charles Spurgeon uh, preached. And uh, so Dr. Williams, though, uh, caught my interest because he put out a video, and the video was about Dr. Uh, Al Mohler at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And it was about an hour long. I would encourage you to go watch it. I'll put the link uh, in the info section below. Uh, you can click on it and watch it there. But, um, you know, Dr. Mueller has been uh, an enigma for many in the conservative Christian camp because some wonder, why isn't he doing more? Why is he making some of the decisions that he's making? And they scratch their heads and they say, well, maybe he's got a bigger plan. Maybe he's waiting to come out swinging for conservatism, perhaps when he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, if he wins that. Uh, and then, you know, others are saying, I don't think Al Mohler is with us. I think he's perhaps playing politics and he's, uh, or, or even worse, maybe he's liberal. Some people think that. So I, I want to have Dr. Williams um, weigh in on this because he spent a lot of time thinking about this. And so uh, with that long introduction, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. And Dr. Williams, I want to ask you uh, the obvious question first is uh, you are in England and you decided to make this one hour documentary, for lack of a better term, on Albert Moeller. And, um, and I think I just want to ask why. why. Why did that interest you all the way over there in England? Because American Christianity has an enormous impact in the UK. Many of the celebrity pastors visit the UK frequently. Examples would be uh, the famous Mark Driscoll, who was invited to speak at the London Men's Convention in the Royal Albert Hall to about 5,000 evangelical Christians. Um, and he had an enormous impact, especially on young people. John Piper um, 
with his uh, Desiring God website and books, I was invited to the Methodist Central Hall in London about a year ago. Dr. Tim Keller um, has been invited to the Evangelical Ministries Assembly, speaking to thousands of uh, evangelical pastors, teaching us what the gospel really is. So there's no question that celebrity pastors from the US have a great influence in the UK. And Albert Moeller was in the UK speaking at the Ligonier conference. And of course, the books of these famous men are widely available in most of our evangelical churches. So I had done a podcast where I think the title is Al Mohler and Leftist Apologies. And people can go look it up. Uh, I believe it was around April or so. Um, and I pointed something out that just a trend I had noticed um, that if Al Mohler is ever on a you know network television or um, I shouldn't say network cable news really, or um, if he's in the newspaper for something, it's, it's because he's usually apologizing for something or um, you know, he opposed uh, Roy Moore, who was a conservative um, uh, chief justice uh, down in Alabama who was running for Senate. He, he, that was about two years ago. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here on CNN, Mr. Mueller. We appreciate it. Let's talk about this scandal surrounding the Senate candidate Roy Moore is forcing Christian voters in Alabama to make a really tough decision. How is an evangelical Christian voter supposed to choose which is more important, their politics or their faith? Well, you know, that's a very good question. It's a crisis of conscience that evangelicals are facing right now acutely in Alabama. And, uh, you know, Don, the first thing we have to understand is the severity of these charges. If, if, if we're united on anything in terms of moral judgment as a people, surely it is the fact that uh, no 30-year-old man has any business having anything to do with a 14-year-old girl. The sexual abuse, uh, which is all that it can be called, of a minor is something, thanks be to God, even in this morally confused age, there still is a strong consensus is just absolutely wrong. The inadequacy of Judge Moore's response and, uh, and his denials, uh, the, the, they just were far too elastic. Even though in the 2016, there was a real division amongst evangelicals about the election, conservative, biblically-minded evangelicals, uh, I think there's a lot more unanimity a lot more consensus in this case, and I'm thankful for that. There is no groundswell of evangelical leadership, pastors and evangelical leaders, yeah. uh, saying this is not a big deal. It yeah. is a big deal. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I, I appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for coming on, Mr. Moeller. Thanks for having me, Don. Uh, he um, then was in the media again for this statement on slavery uh, about I don't know, about a little over a year ago. The 71-page document is thoroughly researched and unsparing. In an introductory letter, seminary president Albert Moeller summarizes, the founding fathers of this school, all four of them, were deeply involved in slavery and deeply complicit in the defense of slavery, Moeller writes. Many of their successors, he says, advocated segregation and the inferiority of African Americans. We knew in generalities that the founders of the seminary owned slaves. We knew in generality that they've been very much a part of Southern culture, the culture of reconstruction and uh, even legal segregation, but it had never been documented. 
The report, written by six current and former faculty members, draws heavily on the seminary's own archives. It acknowledges the only reason a separate Southern Baptist denomination was formed back in 1845 was because Northern Baptists refused to appoint slaveholders as missionaries. The Southern Baptist Convention, more than 20 years ago, apologized for its connection to slavery. Last year it passed a resolution condemning white supremacy. The Southern Baptists today are distinguished from others mainly by their more evangelical and politically conservative identity. Allison Green, a historian of religion at Emory University, says this new report is significant, but she wonders what might follow. Making a statement about Confederate monuments might be a next step, or taking a stand on questions of voting rights in the 21st century. There will be more changes, says Albert Moeller, though he can't say what. Um, he had a formal apology in the Houston Chronicle for endorsing C.J. Mahaney's ministry, and no new information had come out about Mahaney, and he had you know, publicly defended Mahaney. But uh, all of a sudden, during the Me Too movement, he comes out uh, not in a Baptist press or Christian publication of some kind. He comes out in secular media, the Houston Chronicle. Uh, and so I noticed this trend. And I just thought it was unusual. You know, why, why is Al Mohler, the only time I, I ever hear from him is when he's saying something against a conservative or uh, apologizing for something that Christians have done. And, um, and, and then, you know, last year, the social justice and the gospel statement came out and he uh, did not sign it, which it, I mean, is okay if he has a legitimate reason, but his reason was weird. Uh, I did not sign the document and uh, I did not sign the document because I would not express uh, even some of the concerns I share with those who frame the document in the way that that uh, document was uh, was written in specific language and uh, and contextualized it's not in the fact that i don't share many of the concerns and 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 certainly the rejection of any secular notion of uh, or or conception of social justice which is incompatible with the christian worldview of scripture and the gospel uh, i i would say that uh, a, a part of of this this situation is that you have a statement and you have statements about the statement, including people who are writing articles and blog articles who have signed the statement and are, and are explaining it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that one of the greatest issues of concern I have is, uh, is with the question of victims. Um, because uh, the statement itself talks about entitled victims. Well, I understand that. There's a, certainly a wrong kind of entitlement that comes with a victim mentality of a society that tries to define everybody as a victim. And, and, but, but more than that, confuses victimhood with some kind of moral innocence. And, uh, and, and that's, a, that, that's, that's just not right. But uh, I think any biblical worldview would help us uh, insist uh, that, that, in fact, mandate that we understand there are real victims. We were just talking about sexual abuse. There are real victims uh, in sexual abuse. I, I can't avoid understanding the reality of race and the, and the deadly, deadly reality of claims of racial supremacy, and in particular, white racial supremacy. That's not a theory. Uh, that's a reality. There are ongoing manifestations uh, of this same uh, racism, which is the great stain uh, against uh, the American nation and the great stain against much of American Christianity. And so he couldn't sign it in good conscience. And, uh, 
And, and so th this was all strange uh, to me, partially because there's language in the statement on social justice in the gospel that you can go read, and I'm sure Al Mohler's read it, but it should have alleviated the concerns that he has. For instance, in the section on justice, section three, we affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. Um, the statement on race and ethnicity, it says all sinful actions and their results, including evils perpetuated between and upon ethnic groups by others are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. Now, of course, there's denials. They, they deny that, you know, sons are responsible for the sins of their fathers and so forth and so on. You can go read it. I encourage you to read it and I encourage you to sign it, but I don't quite understand why Dr. Moeller is using the reasons that he's using for not signing the document. If, if he read the document, it addresses the concerns that he seems to have. Uh, furthermore, he said that he wanted to have a conversation about this that was healthy. So I am hoping for a healthy, holy conversation here, and I'm hoping that it brings strength and, uh, and good repute to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem in my thinking though is that when this opportunity came up to actually have this conversation at the Shepherds Conference in 2019, this is what happened. Back to what you said about uh, incremental changes that, that promote that sort of liberalizing tendency and, and realize that just last year at both the Gospel Coalition and together for the gospel, I was hearing some rhetoric that actually I first heard from Jim Wallace and Sojourners 20, 30 years ago. And so I think what I'm asking you is, uh, in fact, what I am asking you is, do you not see that th that the evangelical movement, even, the, even our constituency, the most conservative end of the evangelical movement is becoming a little more susceptible to that but Phil, you've known me for a long time. You know the answer to the question is yes, but I'm not going to be forced into a situation before thousands of people in which I have to say I'm going to do it your way. Sorry. Okay. I'm just not. And if that's Fair a test enough. of fellowship amongst us, yeah. this will be a good time to find out. So I'm genuinely confused along with many others. And to make matters worse, over the last year, it has been difficult for... People like myself, even, who value Albert Moeller's uh, legacy, um, who want to think of him as conservative, he's made it very difficult for us to come up with a paradigm to defend him because there's just been a pattern of public actions he's taken that don't seem to line up with the image that we have in our minds of him. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. Uh, this isn't exhaustive, but um, it's certainly enough. Um, he says in July that uh, this is his favorite section at the Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, and he takes a picture of the new academic arrivals, and they're, they're right there in the front are um, Jamar Tisby, Color of Compromise, Eric Mason, Woke Church. And I, I've heard, because Albert Muller was called out for this and asked to explain himself, I've heard that behind closed doors they made a decision to get rid of those books. However, um, that being said, uh, there was no public that, that I could find um, explanation from Dr. Muller. There was no, um, I mean, this would have been the opportunity. These ideas are ripping the Southern Baptist Convention in two, and he says he doesn't agree with them. So if that's true, then he could have taken this opportunity to say, I know I gave the impression that our institution endorses these books. Actually, we don't. And uh, here's why. And he didn't do that. Um, I mean, the impression that's still out there uh, publicly is that these are carried at the Boyce College and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Bookstore. 
um, you know, as a positive thing. Um, and then you have, uh, in July, the Founders Ministry trailer drops, and Albert Muller is apparently friends with Tom Askell, but instead of giving him benefit of the doubt, he comes out with this statement saying he's alarmed at how some respected SBC leaders are represented, and that Southern Baptists expect and deserve a respectful and honest exchange of ideas. So he's saying, basically, Tom Askell and Founders Ministry aren't engaging in respectful and honest exchanging of ideas. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, you keep going. Um, the next month, uh, there was a, a video that went viral of Matthew Hall saying that he was a racist. He's a white supremacist. I am a racist. I am, I'm going to struggle with racism and white supremacy until the day I die and get my glorified body mm. in, a re, in a completely renewed and sanctified mind. Wow. Um, because I'm immersed in a culture where I, I benefit from racism all mm. the time. One reason why I love Dr. Hall is because you know, he's well-versed in critical race theory and history. And uh, this is identified by Curtis Woods as critical theory and Jarvis Williams, Curtis Woods, and Matthew Hall. Uh, all um, are basically caught, in a sense, uh, in this video montage put out by enemies within the church, uh, promoting critical race theory ideas for years in the plain open sight at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where Albert Muller's the president. You'd think he know what his provost is doing. Uh, and it, I mean, it happened so many times, uh, it's, uh, it's incomprehensible that he wouldn't know what's going on on his own campus. Yet, uh, what Albert Muller did in reaction to this was he put out a tweet about Matthew Hall signing the abstract and principles. And I pointed out at the time, I wrote an article um, about how faith statements can't save us, but I pointed out that, you know, if you give up objectivity and truth, <laughs> then, uh, which is really what's at stake in critical race theory and any of the critical theories, then it, you can sign that document all day long. It makes no difference. And, um, and Albert Moeller, though, seems to be defending uh, Matthew Hall. No explanation, no retractions, just he's, I've got my stamp of approval on this man. And he's, you know, set to take over from Al Moeller. Uh, he's the one that Al Moeller has raised up. This is concerning. Um, then, of course, uh, Dr. Williams, Dr. E.S. Williams' video on Albert Moeller, uh, focusing on the stain of racism, comes out. And uh, Albert Moeller's uh, reaction uh, to that the very next day is to, uh, it looks like, and I don't know for this for certain, but it looks like Matthew Hall or Albert Moeller trying to get Matthew Hall to do this. Maybe Matthew Hall heard, got a phone call from Moeller. I don't know. But they, they reacted like within one day with Matthew Hall writing an article about where he stands on critical race theory. And essentially, he tries to say, I, I don't agree with that. But I did, as I pointed out in an episode uh, right after this, that none of the ideas that Matthew Hall or Jarvis Williams or Curtis Woods advocated were actually contradicted. Um, there's a lot of uh, abstract language in there to try to appease those who don't like critical race theory and know that it's dangerous, but what he doesn't do is actually retract the statements he's made that are consistent with critical race theory. And so it, it's inadequate. Um, in my mind, Albert Muller's a smart guy. He should know that, you would think. Uh, then you have um, what Albert Muller has done uh, with Tom Askell. I, I mean, again, they're supposed to be friends. And yet, um, it seems like every step of the way, Tom Askell gets really hit hard online, and Albert Moeller doesn't seem to ever come out and defend him, which it's a curious thing, because he'll defend Matthew Hall, he'll defend others, as we'll see, but he, he won't defend um, uh, Tom Askell. And uh, so Tom Askell 
uh, was critical of Southern Baptist, or I should say Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where Danny Aiken's the president. They hired uh, a professor who doesn't have a great track record on the same-sex attraction and uh, sort of homosexuality debates in the convention. Uh, she's, she's more coming from the left, and so Founders Ministry um, uh, wrote an article about this. And Albert Moeller's uh, reaction uh, was to kind of circle the wagons around Danny Aiken. And he calls Danny Aiken, he's one of my, my closest colleagues for more than two decades, and a man I would trust with my whole heart. He is a brother who has fought the, the good fight for his entire life. And of course, he retweeted Adam Greenway's statement that calls Danny Aiken conservative to the bone, convictional in every way, and confessionally committed to a high view of scripture and the Baptist faith message. So, you know, th this is a curious thing because there are legitimate um, concerns brought up by Founders Ministries and Tom Askell and Albert Moeller, without addressing any of those things, just endorses Danny Aiken. He's conservative to the bone. You know, don't question this man seems to be the uh, narrative coming out of that. And then you have um, Robert Oscar Lopez uh, in December uh, getting fired for his position. I mean, talk about <laughs> timing, right? Right after uh, this, this other professor, Karen Swallow Pryor, is going to Southeastern, uh, or is, it's announced that she's hired, and there's um, a debate over this because of her uh, endorsement of the Revoice, essentially what Revoice is trying to do, their message. Uh, then you have Robert Oscar Lopez, who has contradicted the Revoice message, who is conservative, who uh, does not believe in this innate same-sex orientation concept you don't find in Scripture, and he gets fired. And instead of Albert Moeller uh, addressing concerns um, uh, about this, he comes out with a statement on his Twitter again, I have full confidence in the biblical fidelity of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the commitment of its leadership to a robustly biblical vision of human sexuality and gender. Southern Baptists are well served by six seminaries committed to biblical fidelity. And so the, the timing of all this shows that there, it's a reaction. He's reacting to what's happening at Southwestern and wants to say that, no, they, they actually are um, faithful. They are uh, consistent uh, with their um, uh, application of the word of God. And, uh, you know, nothing to see here seems to be the, the narrative. And, and, I look at the other side, I look, okay, you know, Dr. Moeller has defended uh, all, you know, the liberals, essentially the institutions and um, those who run these institutions who are liberal, who have uh, done liberal things, Dr. Moeller will defend them against the conservatives, you know, roughly speaking. But when conservatives are attacked, Dr. Moeller doesn't seem to do hardly anything, really nothing um, that I can see. And I'll give you some examples of that. Um, John MacArthur and Albert Moeller, from, from what I know, they're, they're good friends. I thought they were. And yet when Lingen Duncan, Danny Aiken, and J.D. Greer go after John MacArthur hard, hard guys, after the whole um, go home comment uh, the, about Beth Moore, uh, Dr. Moeller says nothing. Not, not one thing, not, not even, you know, I wouldn't have phrased it the way John MacArthur did, but you know, he's a good friend and I, I understand what he meant. Nothing, doesn't say anything. Um, you have, uh, you know, the Naples, uh, SBC Naples thing. And, and I don't know if uh, John, or, um, Dr. Moeller was friends with uh, Hayes Wicker at all, who was the former pastor there. I'm not sure what his relationship is, but this was kind of a big deal last November. Uh, you had uh, a church essentially called, well, the church itself, the leaders of the church came out with a statement saying, yeah, uh, our people are essentially racist. We have a, a contingent of them in the church, and we're dealing with it, and we apologize to the convention. And then you have all these bigwig Southern Baptists coming out, and 
saying, yeah, you know, racism's horrible, and like, we got a problem in the SBC. And Albert Mueller, you know, doesn't say anything. And he's not necessarily obligated to. I'm just saying he weighs in on these other things. Why not weigh in on that? And why not um, at least caution, let's make sure we get all the facts. Um, those, I did go down there. I have gotten the facts. And uh, it is not anything close to what was portrayed. Um, you have James White. James White and Albert Mueller, you know, supposedly they're on friendly terms. They seem to interact, you know, well. And James White is attacked by Eric Mason for being supposedly a racist. James White's a racist. And this gets uh, in, you know, this Christian Post even runs with, with that story. And, of course, Albert Mueller says nothing. I'm looking at this trend and I'm saying, what makes sense of all this? And then I saw your video. And your video um, was very interesting to me. And the, the thesis behind it seems to be that Al Mohler for a very long time has had a guilty conscience about, I guess, past racism in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he's promoted this idea that there's a stain of racism that we just can never get rid of. I can't associate with any assertion that we do not have a massive problem in the society and in the church with claims of racial superiority and with historic patterns of claims of white racial superiority and with the fact that remnants and ongoing manifestations of those claims of white racial superiority continue. Even though in 1995 there was an apology, it just, we need to have more resolutions, we need to do something, we need to lament more. Um, how did you figure that out? Because <laughs> I didn't even see that. Well, to me, this was the big thing. As I studied Mueller, particularly as he had to do with the Dallas Statement and wondered why he didn't sign it. And the more I looked into Mueller, I realized that the big thing is around racism. And of course, the book that has just been published, this, Removing the Stain of Racism from the Southern Baptist Convention. And I found this remarkable that there should be such a great influence, uh, interest in the subject of racism. And of course, Mola in uh, 2015 preached a sermon in which he used, coined the phrase, the stain of racism, which he called demonic. And he identified this as the big problem in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so they needed this book to help Southern Baptists realize that they had to repent and change. And that racism was the great problem that they were facing. And of course, critical race theory teaches that institutional racism exists in every structure in society. And according to this theory, racism is ingrained in the fabric of American society. After all, slavery is ended. Segregation is no more. Indeed, despite the defeat of the Civil Rights Statute of 1990, there remain more civil rights protections in the law today than at any other time in our history. Racism is not a group of bad white people whose discriminatory propensities can be controlled by well-written civil rights laws vigorously enforced. Rather, there is a deeply held belief in white superiority that serves as a key regulative force in an otherwise fragile and dangerously divided society. Indeed, it's difficult to think of another characteristic of societal functioning that has retained its viability 
and its values to social stability from the very beginning of the American experience down to the present day. And whites are described as the oppressors because they have the power conferred on them by the color of their skin. And Mola, I, I found this incredible, believes that white racial superiority continues to be a massive problem in the SBC. In other words, saying that all these Christians are actually racists. And as you mentioned, he has said that the stain of racism is so deep that it cannot be removed until the second coming of Christ. And when we see Pastor David Platt, a former president of the International Mission Board of the SBC, saying that white Christians are immersed in racism. And so the whole focus of the Southern Baptist Convention appears to be on the issue of race. It does seem to be the Achilles heel. Uh, the, the other movements like uh, soft-pedaling homosexuality at the Reboys Conference, um, uh, now uh, feminism is coming in, but <clears throat> it does seem to be this whole movement uh, seems to be advancing with this racism emphasis on the front of it. That, that, that's kind of the, um, that's what Southern Baptists seem to be very guilty of. And, you know, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary and I never once in all the churches that I visited and attended uh, down there that were Southern Baptists at the seminary, I never once met any white supremacist. Um, but I heard all the time how the Southern Baptist Convention has a problem with white supremacy. And it was confusing to me at that point. Like, Who are these people? I'd like to meet them so we can tell, you know, correct this. But um, there, it was never, there was no names or faces given to it. It was just, everyone knows this is a problem. And, and you're right. That does sound like it's consistent, at least, with critical race theory. Um, it, is this a problem in England as well? Uh, this idea that we're just racist, even though we don't know it, or we can't identify someone? Or? Well, it, it is a problem, and it's becoming increasingly on the BBC and the mass media that uh, there's racism in football and wherever you, uh, cricket and wherever you look in society, but not to the degree, I would say, that it is in the USA. Okay. Um, and of course, the problem with this is that once an accusation of racism is made, a person's life can be destroyed and there can be no defense. If you're accused of racism, you cannot defend yourself. We, we just learned that with uh, the congregants at FBC Naples in Florida. A bunch of them were accused of racism and there's no evidence for it, but they were excommunicated from their church on this basis. Big Southern Baptist Church. Um, Danny Aiken's son, Jonathan Aiken, is now the interim pastor there. And it's just, it's a mess. And, um, it, it really makes me sad because uh, we don't do this with other sins. We, we don't go around and, and call people, you know, child molesters or something like that without evidence. Well, but, you see, yeah. When ahead. I was thinking about this, how do we uh, understand what this whole issue is and this whole argument? And in my uh, experience, what we then need to do is set aside all human thought and turn to the scriptures. And what, is the, what do the scriptures say about racism? Well, the first thing that we know is that racism is not mentioned in the scriptures. In fact, it is a sociopolitical construct. But scripture does speak on this issue. 
particularly in the book of James, in James chapter 3, where scripture speaks of two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom of God, divine wisdom, which is from above, and false wisdom, which is from below. And I believe that this helps us to understand what is happening. Um, so the wisdom that is from above, divine wisdom, is, according to scripture, first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, and without partiality. And I think that's essential because what we are dealing with and what the scripture is dealing with is the sin of partiality. That's right. Now, the false wisdom, earthly wisdom, this wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, sensual, and scripture even uses the word demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every kind of evil thing are there. So false earthly wisdom is characterized by the sin of partiality. And this is what we're speaking about. Not racism. There is no such thing. Not in scripture. There is a sin of partiality. And this is a sin which is against the character of God. It is ubiquitous to all people. Black and white. We are all partial. And the cure of this sin, not the cure, the, the um, way this is redeemed is through the gospel. So Christians who were at once uh, partial and under the power of this sin, once they are born again, are no longer slaves to the sin of partiality. And this is the greatness of the gospel of Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We partakers of the divine nature. And so we then get the big issue. Can a Christian be a racist? And in my understanding of scripture, the answer is no. A regenerate Christian who is born again of God's Holy Spirit is no longer a slave to the sin of partiality. So Christians cannot be controlled by impartiality or by partiality. That's not possible. And of course, the whole thing of Christianity is that we are commanded to love our enemies, and even more, um, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Christians do not need to strive for racial reconciliation. We are reconciled in Christ, as Vardy Bausham says in his excellent uh, sermon on this issue. So there is no racial divide in the true church of God. We are reconciled by the blood of Christ. We have the same heavenly father, the same savior, black and white. And of course, we see this very much in our church, which is evenly divided between black and white. There is no feeling at all, ever, of any racism. We don't have to be sensitive. We're brothers in Christ. We work together. We love one another. Mm. doesn't exist. It is, in my understanding, the false church that is obsessed with racism and the search for racial reconciliation. It's a false church, it's not the true church. That's interesting that you say that. And that's, an, that's a very fascinating uh, distinction that you just made because we wouldn't call someone, you know, let's say someone came from a culture where stealing was common. We wouldn't say, well, they're just a Christian thief or something like that. 
we would say you know, maybe a Christian can engage in that, but we don't define them by that, which is, it sounds like to me, that's what you're saying is that we don't define Christians by a sin. Um, yeah. And, and so, um, so, so I, I'm just anticipating here some pushback because I, like you, I have attended for years, a church that is multi-ethnic. We were never trying to pursue multi-ethnicity. We just preached the gospel and God called people from all different backgrounds and we love each other. Uh, but there are, Areas, um, even areas, you know, in, in the north and in the west and, and outside the south in this country, there are, there are areas in which you have a church that is associated with um, one ethnicity and a church that is associated with another ethnicity. So you might have a church that's Chinese and a church that's uh, African-American and a church that is uh, white or Anglo or something, you know, and, and people will think of these churches in um, ethnic terms. I don't know if you have that as much in, in England or not, but w- what do you say to the people that look at that and they say, well, isn't this a problem? Is, isn't racism the problem here? Well, I don't think so at all. If Chinese uh, people wish to worship um, together as a group, that's perfect. Why are we concerned about it? Because we, again, this goes to this whole concept of race. Let's forget about race. We are one in Christ. We believers. And it's interesting when we see the difference in the, um, the approach between David Platt, who preached his famous sermon on um, racism and the need for reconciliation how, and how the church is immersed in racism, which I found incredible. And, of course, his message was we need to have multi-ethnic churches. No, we don't. We need true believers. We need to preach the gospel. Much of the problem is because people in the church are not born again. They're nominal. Now racism, and this becomes an issue. But if people mm-hmm. are believers, does it matter with whom we are worshiping? And, of course, black and white people will worship together. It's natural. Yeah. So um, getting back to Al Mohler then, uh, I think the, the reason I asked the previous question is because I think he's looking at this supposed um, divide within there's black churches, there's white churches, there's Asian churches, there, you know, uh, or Chinese or Hispanic or whatever. He's looking at that and I think he's saying, well, that, that must be racism. That, that's at least the common, I, I don't know a direct quote from Al Mohler where he says that exact uh, Thing. He doesn't, you know, diagnose but the whole. David Platt is inferring that in his sermon. I hear it all the time that that's the reason that we still have racism is because look at the evidence that you know that's that's the proof, um, and and so in order to uh, do something about it, we we have to employ critical race theory. Or in the case of Al Mohler, it sounds like we have to lament uh, this. The, the past in, injustices that uh, people in the Southern Baptist Convention participated in, and somehow that's going to bring us forward to some kind of racial reconciliation. And um, anyway, Al Mohler um, doesn't, he, he certainly does not contradict what David Platt says or what anyone else says about it. And it seems consistent, his actions with what, what they've said. Uh, do, do you think that's what's motivating him that he just, uh, number one, the guilt of the past and what's happened, and number two, looking around and seeing uh, different ethnicities attend different churches? Well, um, I mean, I think the book Removing the Stain, which he writes with these men who are, from what I can see, all 
committed to the uh, critical race theory. And he associates with these people absolutely and agrees mm. with them. There's no, in my understanding of just looking at this, not knowing the, the details of the, these individual men, they are completely, this is an obsession. Mm. And they forcing this upon the church. So I think that Mola has a, and he, Mola said, judge me by those who I platform with, those who might promote. Well, he mm. is promoting people who support critical race theory. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a good point. What, what do you say to folks who, uh, and I've heard this many times, they say, you know what, Al Mohler, he's just trying to uh, survive in this highly woke environment and he's going to come out swinging for the conservatives soon. Just watch. It, it takes a long time to turn the SBC around and, and he's got it under control, but we just have to give him time and, and have patience. Well, I would say um, Mola is prone to change his mind, as he has on many occasions. So how much faith you can have if he makes some statement? I mean, and we've seen that in the uh, LGBT thing, where he's changed completely from his view on sexual orientation, where he said it was sinful and unacceptable, and then he repented of it. And I think the other examples of him changing his mind the other thing about Albert Mohler is I think it's very difficult to know what he's actually saying. I can't tell you my frustration at reading some long articles that he writes and at the end of it saying, well, what actually has he said? <laughs> and, yeah. and I find it just confusing and you can interpret it any way that you like. And then there's the links that he's got with um, Russell Moore and uh, what's, what's his organization called? The... Uh, Ethics uh, and religious ethics and yeah, religious liberty commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, and I think that Russell Moore is at, at an extreme with his left uh, left wing ideas. Why does Mueller so fully support him? And of course, this was the reason Mueller wouldn't sign the Dallas Statement and the Gospel Coalition. These are yeah. compromised organisations. I don't think you have to be uh, uh, very knowledgeable to know that these organizations are not true to the gospel. So if these are the people that Mola promotes and associates with, scripture says we know them by their friends, fruits, and the friends, those that they associate with. I, I suspect, and I could be wrong about this, but I predict that Al Mohler, since he's running for the SBC presidency, he is going to shift to the right in his rhetoric pretty soon. And, uh, and he's been given a lot of room to do that because you have people in the SBC who want women preachers and, and so forth. So I expect him to come out swinging against uh, egalitarianism and um, perhaps against some of the more radical uh, LGBT type stuff. Um, I know he, uh, I, I know what you said about him uh, changing his views on orientation, which is true. He has changed his views and on that, but he, he is against the action of homosexuality. And I expect him to start swinging against those things, but he will probably retain this idea that there is a stain of racism in the SBC. And uh, that's just my prediction. But that, from what you're saying in the video that I encourage everyone to go watch that you produced, um, that, that's, too, that's a bridge too far for me to believe that. 
to, to think that we have to continually lament for something that we're not even individually guilty of um, because of churches of different ethnicities that exist or because of things that have happened in the past. Um, you know, the, I, I, it was always there, but you somehow made it make more sense. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it's because you're, you're looking at this from a distance. But and, also, if you look at the, at the venom of those who promote this ideology, there's almost a hatred in some of the, that yes. I observed against other Christians. Now, this is very serious matter. This is the church of God. And if people attack the church of God, that's terribly serious. And to me, this is what I saw, that a real hatred in this whole racial obsession that runs through the SBC. And Mola is the man who has led it. He knows about it and he's gone along with it and promoted it in every possible way. And how can you be... I mean, he understands cultural Marxism. That's right. So it's not a, a mystery to him, and yet he's gone along with it and promoted it. And I he's think, in fact destroying the Southern Baptist Convention, in my opinion. I think that's what has people confused more than anything else, is what you just said, that he understands cultural Marxism. If you listen to the briefing, um, he has talked about cultural Marxism, and he will take the battle to the left in the political arena or in other denominations like the United Methodist church. But for some reason in the Southern Baptist convention, he hardly ever talks about the leftward drift there. And, uh, and if he does, it's, it's certainly not the way he talks about it in other institutions. Where, where can people find you? Do you have a website, Dr. Williams? (laughs) Or uh, I know your books are for sale at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So people can go there. And they're all on Amazon. Um, yeah. What's our website? I mean, we've got the New Calvinist website, thenewcalvinist.com. Okay. I just ordered one of your books uh, on ecumenis- ecumenism, I think it's called, um, about the Lausanne Covenant. Yeah, and, yeah. So I have that now. I ordered it and uh, looking forward to reading that. Uh, it's on Kindle for like $5. So um, buy that, yeah. Yeah, so I, I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me your time. Uh, and I, I hope this is helpful for those who are trying to make sense of this. Thanks so much for the time and being able to talk about these important issues. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye now. Well, I know that was a long one, uh, but I think it was necessary to go over all of these things so that we can try to come up with a paradigm for explaining all these actions. And it, again, it's important. He's running for president of the SBC. Now, I'll tell you where I come down. I do think there's an element of opportunism. I don't know how else to make sense of some of the actions, especially over the past year. If that's true, what I would expect is he will start taking little shots here or there at uh, the ERLC, Russell Moore, uh, Beth Moore, people that are more safe, people that are on the fringes um, in some people's minds, the more liberal wing, like really liberal wing of the SBC. And he'll probably ignore things happening on his own campus uh, that have happened on his own campus, things that are happening on uh, at other institutions, he'll probably circle the wagons when it comes to those who are, are really the big players in the actual convention. Um, that's that's my prediction. Maybe that's not true. You know, maybe you come to you come to a different conclusion, have a different way of um, looking at all these things. And if you do, please comment. I'm I'm certainly open. I've been listening to people for the last year tell me 
all sorts of things about how they see it. And I'm just telling you how I see it. Now, do I think he's a complete opportunist? No, because I think he's been pretty solid on complementarianism. And uh, it does seem, I, I want to believe, and, and I don't see any evidence to the contrary that that probably is a conviction of his. Um, but uh, there is some expediency, some political expediency on the other two major issues. And uh, so I hope this was helpful. Uh, let's pray for him. Let's pray for the SBC. Let's pray for the convention, conservatives like Tom Askell in the convention um, going forward. We can either go away from evangelicalism or we can remain true. And obviously I pray we remain true. And that, um, I pray, my prayer is that God will use us as his means by which uh, the convention does remain true. Uh, but uh, God bless you all. Thank you for listening. And, um, and I hope that was helpful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.